Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Again, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts of devotion, hearts of longing. Cause your word to bear its fruit in our minds, in our hearts, in this new life that is ours in Jesus our Lord. Father, cause him to be exalted amongst us and within us, and cause us to be built up in this most holy faith. It's in his name and for his sake that we ask. Amen. Well, somewhat sadly, I guess we could go on forever, but this morning we're going to conclude our series in the Psalms. And um, as, as I've said throughout this series in trying to even say, okay, how do we deal with something as broad and diverse as the Psalms? How do we think about the Psalter? Uh, we've treated it under this idea of the Psalms being at the very center of Israel's worship. Scripture that was composed as songs to be sung, to be central to Israel's worship. And Israel's worship was grounded in the fact of Israel's sonship. It was precisely because they were, by God's own election, by his own determination in Abraham, they were the sons and the daughters of the living God. And that concept, that reality of sonship, stood behind all of their worship of God and therefore is reflected in these songs that they composed to be sung as part of their worship. And in dealing with the Psalter as songs of sonship, uh, I've considered them under these three basic heads of psalms that attest and celebrate this concept of sonship, the reality of sonship, psalms of praise, psalms of gratitude, psalms of exaltation. And then we considered, secondly, psalms that expressed the challenge that Israel faced in living out its own sonship, psalms that expressed frustration, lament, penitence, imprecation, pleading with God to deliver them from their enemies, all of the things that stood against Israel's faithful living out of its sonship, even at the center of that, the fact of their own wayward hearts. But if God had a purpose in his election for Israel, if this idea of sonship wasn't just arbitrary or capricious, but God had a purpose in it, if it was going somewhere, if there was a goal in it, then we should see in the Psalms also 
an expectation of the consummation, the consummating of that sonship, that somehow in some way Israel would become what God had called them to be. They would become sons indeed, a consummating of sonship. And last week, as we considered that theme of the consummating of sonship, we looked at a a series of Psalms 96 to 99 that together deal with this idea of God consummating Israel's relationship with him, this sonship relationship through this, uh, this activity of judgment. That it was going to be God arising and judging the world, not just the human world, but the creation, coming to judge the earth. A great and an, and an awesome, a climactic and a, and a determinative judgment that would be uh, somehow the means through which Israel would become Israel indeed. And as we come today, I want to tighten that up and narrow it down a little bit just to look at a psalm that, that speaks more specifically to how would that happen? We looked at psalms again that, that say Yahweh is becoming king. He will be king over all the earth. He, Rejoice, let Paul, all the creation rejoice because God is coming to judge the world. He will become king over all things. Okay, well, what more narrowly, what more specifically does that involve? What does that look like? How would that come about? And I decided to actually have us consider then today Psalm 110. There are various psalms that we could look at, but... I I hope that in making that choice, I was making the scriptures choice in that there is no psalm that is more referenced or alluded to in the New Testament than Psalm 110. And in fact, not just among the psalms, but of all of the Old Testament scriptures, the one that is most cited or referenced in some sense is Psalm 110. We saw it, it popping up, obviously, in the epistle to the Hebrews. So why is that important? Why is that important? Because it obviously says that that what Psalm 110 presents was understood in the early church to be pointing to and to find its fulfillment in relation to this great work of renewal and restoration that God was accomplishing or and had accomplished in his son. In other words, the consummating of Israel's sonship and beyond Israel, the consummating of the reality of human sonship for the sake of the whole creation is, has a focal point in this particular psalm, Psalm 110. So again, just a little bit of background before we read it. Israel was chosen by God to be his covenant son on behalf of the world. Israel's election was a functional election, a chosen people in order to bring the knowledge of God to all the families of the earth. And at the center of Israel's sonship was a priestly and a regal idea. Even when God brought them to Sinai, He said that they would be a royal people, right? A royal nation, a a household of priests. A regal and a priestly people. And it was through that, 
it was through faithfulness to that identity and that calling that they would cause the families of the earth to know their God. How so? Because by administering his lordship, the kingdom of Israel being a royal people, a royal nation, that manifested his lordship, not only in Israel, but throughout the world. Their regal quality testified of him, so also their priestly role as mediators, bearers of the knowledge of God, standing between God and the nations in that sense. Remember, even in Abraham's own instance, he was the man who stood between God and all other people. He was the one that interceded for Abimelech. He was the one that stood between God and the peoples around them. Israel's royal priesthood was the way in which the nations would know God. Most simply, and I've said this many times, a son is of the father. In the biblical parlance, a son is of the father. When you see the father, you see the son. When you see the son, you see the father. A son carries the essential image and likeness of the father. You can see the father in the son. And so Israel's covenant that defined and prescribed its sonship, if they would be faithful to the covenant, if they would faithfully live out their sonship as a royal and a priestly people, then the nations, by observing them, would come to know their God. Israel's vocation, its obligation under the covenant was not to keep a bunch of rules and regulations. It was to be the kind of people that Torah defined and prescribed. Israel's obligation was not to do, it was to be. It was for them to conform to the sonship that their Torah, the law of Moses, defined and prescribed for them. Well, we know Israel failed in that because at the very heart of the obligation of sonship, if a son is of the father and God is love and a son is, is, is to be love in that sense, but also to live in a relationship of love with God in that way, Israel was incapable of that kind of love. Israel's was a failed sonship. And so it's law-breaking was covenant infidelity. That's why I read Hosea. God dealt with Israel's idolatry, its worship of false gods, its unfaithfulness to the covenant as relational unfaithfulness, harlotry. Israel failed in its relationship of sonship. It was incapable of Loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, which the Jews understood was the essence of the law and the prophets, right? The lawyer asked Jesus, what is the great commandment of the law? Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. This is the law and the prophets. On this hangs all of... And, and the scribe didn't say, oh, that's wrong, that's not true, He said, that is it. The Jews understood that. Their failure was the failure of sonship. And yet, their sonship, them fulfilling their vocation as sons, was essential to God's purpose for the world. Israel's sonship was for the sake of God's restorative 
purpose for the world. If Israel could not fulfill its sonship, then God's purposes for the world could not be realized. And so as the salvation history went on, it became more and more clear that Israel could not be Israel indeed. It could not fulfill its, its calling, its identity. But God said, I will somehow arise and I will cause Israel to become Israel. This is even what we were talking about some last week. So this is the way in which the scriptures build their story, build their case. God cannot be done with Israel because of his covenant with Abraham. He will cause Israel to be Israel, and therefore his purposes for his creation will go forward. Well, the Psalter speaks to all of this in various ways, including the consummating of this sonship, which speaks to man's regal priestly destiny. Israel's sonship involved it being a royal priesthood. That's at the center of Israel's calling. And we saw when we looked at Psalm 8, you have David looking up and he's looking at the the sky and the the heavens, the stars and the, the moon. And he says, what is man? What is man that you would even take note of him? I mean, we're insignificant creatures and we're sinful creatures. We're wayward creatures. What is man that you're mindful of him? And he says, but the truth is what you have said is that you created him a little lower than the angels, and yet you crowned him with glory and honor. You ordained to establish him over the works of your hands, that he would rule over the beasts of the field, that he would rule over the creation. Oh God, our God, how majestic are your works in all the earth, right? David understood the human destiny in that sense, the regal priestly function, ruling over the works of God's hands in order to bear the praises and the service of the creation back to God. But he saw it only as a shadowy vision. He's saying, what is man, you know? But he he believed what God had said. This is what I created man for. And David could say, how majestic, how glorious are your works, And he believed that somehow that would come to fruition. Well, in Psalm 110, we see another Psalm of David, how exactly that was going to come to fruition. That human design was going to be fulfilled by God in relation to this messianic figure. So Psalm 110 Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Yahweh has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at at your right hand will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Judge among the nations. Fill them with corpses. Shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside and therefore he will lift up his head. 
Some general observations, then we'll look more particularly at the psalm itself. But the fact that this psalm is repeated more in the New Testament, the Jewish, you know, the New Testament scriptures written by the Jewish Christians, right? The fact that they cited this psalm most often in the New Testament says a couple of things. Number one, this psalm was very familiar to the Israelite people at the time that Jesus was born. It wasn't some obscure passage that nobody knew about. It was very familiar to the Jewish people at the time that Jesus came into the world. Also, it was regarded as messianic. It was regarded as messianic, as referring to this son of David who is to come. Remember, you see this in all of the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They, they all record this same thing. Whether it occurred more than once, we don't know. But Jesus asking the, the leaders and the people around him, who is the son of David? Who is this Messiah? Who is he? Well, he's the son of David. He's the son of David? Okay, then how does David say to him, you are, you are Lord. How does David call him Lord if he's his son? As it is written, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And they didn't know how to answer that. They didn't say, oh, you're misusing that psalm. That's not about the son of David. That's not about the Messiah. They didn't say that. They didn't know how to answer that question. How can David's son be David's Lord? So it was widely regarded as messianic and therefore eschatological. Not in the sense that we so commonly use it. We talk of eschatology in terms of all the end time stuff that's a part of our popular culture. But eschatological in terms of a destiny or a terminus where things are moving. And... and messianism, messianic doctrine, messianic thinking in Israel was eschatological in the sense that the coming of the Messiah meant the beginning of the eschaton. The eschaton as the messianic age, the cholam haba, the age that was to come. When the Jews thought of the coming of Messiah, he would come and inaugurate this everlasting kingdom. In the language that we've, we've seen over and over again as we've gone through the scriptures. Yahweh arising, returning, forgiving Israel's sin, renewing the covenant, overthrowing their enemies, taking his throne again back in his sanctuary, gathering his people back to him, establishing his reign over all the earth in Messiah the Prince, the messianic kingdom, the eschaton. And so any scripture that was viewed as messianic was pointing to that great day of Yahweh, that messianic time when Yahweh would arise and do this great work. So the Jews, to the extent that they viewed Psalm 110 that way, viewed it in that sense of this is pointing to that messianic age, that messianic time. 
It was an important reference point at the time that Jesus came into the world. And Israel had been growing in its sense of messianic expectation for at least a century before, probably closer to two centuries before Jesus was born. Certainly from the time of the Maccabees, there were people who thought Judas Maccabeus was the Messiah in the 160s BC. He was the one who cleansed the temple, remember, after it was defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes. Hanukkah was about that cleansing. But the Maccabeans were the, a royal family that rose up against the Syrian invaders and drove them out and purged God's temple. And many believed that he was the Messiah. But it didn't pan out. And in about 5 AD, when Jesus was very young, there was Judas the Galilean, who was another claimant to be the Messiah, but the Romans crushed him and his followers. It was a bloodbath. That's why the Jews were even so afraid of Jesus being received or, or, or people believing he was the Messiah, because they knew what it meant. The Romans would come and crush them, and it'd be a bloodbath, just like it had been a generation earlier. Remember Caiaphas saying, we can't let this go on. If we do, the Romans will come. And they will take this place and they will destroy all of this. It's better that one man perish than that the whole nation perish. The Romans will be back and they won't put up with this. So there was a great sense of among the Jewish people, could this be the time? Could this be the time? Is the Messiah at hand? Is the Messiah at hand? And this psalm was very much at the center of their thinking as they wrestled with this. They saw this as a messianic psalm, but a perplexing one. There were things about this psalm that were hard to sort out. Even again, Jesus getting at that question, how can the son of David be his Lord? They don't know how to answer it. It says they didn't ask him any more questions. Well, uh, I, there are several things in which this psalm is perplexed again by way of just some introductory things. The first one of the things that the Jews struggled with is the idea that if this is the son of David, how can Yahweh install him at his right hand? Yes, the kings in Israel, David and his descendants, in a sense, sat on Yahweh's throne. You see that spoken of of Solomon when he assumes David's throne, right? At the end of 1 Chronicles, Solomon sat on Yahweh's throne in Jerusalem. But the expression is referring to the fact that David and his sons ruled in God's name over God's kingdom. But that's different than being exalted to be installed at the right hand of God, sitting on God's throne with him. That carried the implication of a kind of equality or shared sovereignty. And that was another issue that the Jews were wrestling with, even from like Daniel 7, you know, the coming up, the the one like a son of man coming to the ancient of days and being given a throne. How, How can David's son sit with Yahweh on his throne? How can that be? 
And again, how can David refer to him as his Lord if he's his son? David was the epitomizing king in Israel. He was the first one who fulfilled that prophecy, the promise that was given to Jacob that the scepter would come to Judah. Saul, the first king, was a Benjamite. He could never really be a true king in Israel. He was of the wrong tribe. The scepter belonged to Judah, and it would remain there till Messiah came, Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs. David was that one. David was the epitomizing king in Israel, and he was the one against whom all subsequent kings were measured. How could this descendant of his be his lord? And yet we know that David did regard that coming one. David himself regarded that coming one. And it comes out in this psalm, which he penned. But he did regard that one, in some sense, as his superior. The Davidic covenant, which promises that son, is in 2 Samuel 7. And when you come to the end of that chapter, as David now is, is... contemplating and commenting on this covenant that God has made with him. He says, verse 18, 2 Samuel 7, David went in and sat before Yahweh and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this, even what you've done is insignificant in your eyes, O Lord, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. This is the custom of man, O Lord God. And what again more can David say to you? For you know your servant. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what nation on earth is like your people, Israel, whom you went to redeem for yourself as a people and to make a name for yourself, to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you've redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. You have established for yourself your people, Israel is your own people forever, and thou, O Lord, hast become their God." And now, therefore, O Yahweh, who is God, the word that you've spoken concerning your servant, he's talking about himself and his house, confirm it forever. Do just as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, Yahweh of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of the servant David be established before you. For you, O Yahweh, Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel and of heaven, the God of Israel, you've made a revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. And therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you alone are God and your works are truth. You have promised this good thing to your servant. And may it please you now to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. The coming of that future one in whom David's house and throne and kingdom would be established forever would transcend him in just that way. He would be the one in whom all that God had done in and through David would be consummated. And at least in that sense, David understood that. David understood that. 
The other thing about this psalm that was perplexing at the time is that this psalm presents this coming ruler as a priest. A priest and not a Levitical one, a priest of a different order. Why is that important? Was there ever a king priest in Israel? No. And why not? There couldn't be. Why not? Because the scepter belonged to Judah, the priests were taken from the tribe of Levi, specifically descendants of Aaron, but Aaron was a Levite. You can't be descended from two brothers. Levi and Judah were brothers. You're descended from one of them or neither of them, but you can't be descended from both of them. There could not be a king priest in Israel. And in fact, God withstood and opposed any merging of those two. Why was the kingdom stripped from Saul? Because he acted as a priest. He offered sacrifices, right? When he was waiting for Samuel, I believe, to come. And later, Uzziah, who was one of the great kings of Judah... Militarily, economically, he was one of the great kings and God blessed him and he walked in the ways of David, his father. But when all of this greatness and grandeur surrounded him, almost like an echo of what would be with Nebuchadnezzar, his heart became swollen and he decided that he could burn incense to the Lord. And God's priest went and confronted him and said, you can't do this, this is not yours to do. And God struck him with leprosy and he was isolated in his house for the rest of his days. Kings cannot be priests. The only one who ever performed priestly functions of the kings of Israel was David, and that was because of his typological significance. Remember, David is wearing the linen ephod, the priestly ephod, bringing the ark up to Jerusalem to enthrone Yahweh on Mount Zion. He's offering sacrifices burnt offerings. So David is doing a priestly function and God is pleased with it. David's wife is mocking him for making such a a silly show of himself. And David says, but God is honored in this when he's offering sacrifices and dancing before the Lord, bringing Yahweh's ark up to Jerusalem to install it after he's conquered Jerusalem. But David typologically was allowed to function as a priest, but he didn't hold the priesthood. He had priests according to the order of Aaron. This psalm is promising a king who will be a priest, not a priest according to the order of Aaron, which was the only one that God recognized in the law of Moses. There were no priests in Israel who were not of the tribe of Levi, who were not descendants of Aaron. This is a priest of a different order and also a priest who is not in a line of priests, but who holds this unique priesthood perpetually. These are things that the Jews were scratching their head trying to figure out. It didn't make sense. If David was right, if he was really led by the spirit in this psalm, how can he be talking about a restoration that involves such fundamental changes. Messiah was coming to restore Israel. How could there be such fundamental changes 
to the Israelite law, to the Israelite structure. These are things that we know from the uh, Hebrews epistle that the writer deals with, right? If Jesus was uh, of the tribe of Judah, he couldn't be a a priest at all. That was reserved to Levi. This is a priest of a different order, a greater order, because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, right? Levi was in Abraham, but Abraham's paying tithes to Melchizedek. This is a greater priesthood. This is a perpetual priesthood. This is a royal priesthood. Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He's the prototypical king priest. And that's who this figure in this psalm is associated with. The Lord has sworn forever and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the psalm is holding out an eschatological vision involving a profound reordering of the nation of Israel, its covenantal relationship with God. These are not incidental things. These are radical things. And I say all of this again just to put this in its Jewish context. The Jews grappled with this. And they would have to. Because if this is looking to that time when God will renew his covenant relationship with Israel, this is a radical reordering of things. A radical reordering. A different priestly order and Yahweh exalting a man to his right hand and ordaining him as a priest outside of the Levitical order. How can this be the restoration of Israel? Well, these questions would not be resolved until the Spirit had been poured out at Pentecost and these Jewish believers in Jesus began to look at these things back through the lens of the Christ event. As they looked back at this psalm in the light of the person and the work of Jesus, they now saw how this was yes and amen in him. And that's why this psalm sits so central in the New Testament record and is constantly cited. So all of that was by way of some general thoughts. In terms of particulars here, I just want to deal with two specific things. This individual in the kingly sense and this individual in the priestly sense. So David is depicting, in his depiction of this person and his, and his activities, he's depicting a future state of affairs that profoundly departed from Israel's covenant Life and the way that it, it understood and lived out that, that uh, covenant with God. This individual would not only function as Yahweh's unique king priest, but his rule and his priestly ministration were to have profound and sweeping effects on the entire world. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then you look at verses 5 and 6. Global, worldwide effects associated with this person and his, his rule. David says that God was going to seat him at his right hand with the goal of subjugating his enemies to him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
this enthronement at the right hand is unto the goal of the subjugation of all of the enemies of this enthroned king. Hence the language of of Yahweh saying, sit at my right hand and then I will extend your scepter. I will extend your scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. This king is set at Yahweh's right hand to subjugate his enemies. But here's the point. David's language, I think, suggests an astonishing quality to this triumph that I don't think most English versions get at. And I can't be absolutely dogmatic about this, but the language permits it, and I think the context calls for it, that this idea of rule in the midst of your enemies is better rendered rule in the inner part of your enemies. It's a term that's used uh, often throughout the Psalms of the inner man, you know, this thing in the inner person. You can find it throughout various Psalms. Rule in the inner part of your enemies. And I think that that's even reinforced by what follows. He says, your people will be a free will offering in the day of your power. That's the idea. Some, I think the NAS says volunteer freely. But it's the, it's the language of the, the free will offering. And in Israel's life, the free will offering was the offering that you brought to God out of your own volition as an act of worship. It wasn't mandated of you. It was one form of the peace offering. But the free will offering was what you voluntarily brought to God. God stretches out his scepter and he says, rule in the inner part of your enemies, for they will be a free will offering in the day of your power. Clothed in holy array from the womb of the dawn. And I think the point is this. This king would build his kingdom not by crushing foes through military might, but by winning their hearts and minds. He would subjugate them. This is about subjugation, right? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Bring them in subjugation to you. Make them subject to you. He would subjugate them by making them devoted subjects. Unheard of in the world of men. How do men, how do kings subjugate enemies? They crush them. They don't, they don't build their kingdoms by winning the hearts and the minds of their enemies. In a sense, David typified that in Israel. You see in 2 Samuel 5 that when David established his reign, it says all of the tribes of Israel came up to him and said, we are bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. We are there with you. We are one with you. But he didn't conquer his enemies that way. They brought him tribute from all of these places because he conquered them. They were under his military conquest. He was the great prototype 
of the messianic king. And yet David didn't conquer his enemies by making them a free will offering in holiness and purity. Rule in the inner part. Rule in the inner realm of your enemies. Your people will be a free will offering in the day of your power. That's the messianic king. That's his triumph. From the priestly side, again, David speaks of this one being ordained as a priest forever. And then he describes this enthroned priest as executing judgment against the earth's kings, mighty men, and nations. It's after speaking of him as this unique priest in perpetuity that he says, you will do this. According to the order of Melchizedek, the Lord at your right hand will shatter kings in the day of his wrath, judge among the nations, fill up the corpses, shatter the chief men over the entire earth is the idea. It's interesting that it's in the context of priesthood that he speaks that way. Well, in a certain sense, the priests were judges in Israel. They were the keepers of the truth. They mediated truth. You know, the indictment against the priests of Israel was that they should preserve knowledge, right? Through the, sacram- uh, the sacramental system, through the, the cultic system, the worship system that was in place, through their ac- activities and through their interaction even with the scriptures... The priests taught the people to know Yahweh. And in that sense, they were judges. They stood between God and the people, both in in assessing the people's relationship with this revealed truth and also mediating that revealed truth to the people. And so they served a kind of role as judges, and I think that's the idea here. This king-priest, according to the Melchizedekian order, would administer God's judgment and retribution, not just respecting the children of Israel, but all mankind, the great and the mighty, as well as the weak and the insignificant. Yahweh was going to enthrone him as his king-priest until the day when he would fully realize his triumph over his enemies. And that triumph comes through the execution of his priestly ministration. Here's the way it should really, I think, be read, and it's very kind of, you know, punctuated. The Lord at your right hand has struck down kings. He judges the nations. He's filled up the corpses. He's struck down the great ones over the whole earth. This one is seated at Yahweh's right hand, and then it is said, the one seated at your right hand judges, judges, does this, does that. This is talking about this king-priest. The NES, I don't think, really gets at that because it, it has, the Lord is at your right hand. It's the Lord at, at your right hand. The Lord says to my Lord, and Yahweh says, sit at my right hand. Then it's the one who's at your right hand does this. Does that make sense? And again, this is the language of of eschatological judgment, a triumph that's achieved ultimately through Messiah's death and resurrection, but consummated at his appearing. 
Sit at my right hand. This is, verse 1 is what's cited so often. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The raising, the enthroning of this king priest, who's now administering his lordship as a priest upon his throne, is carrying out this work of judgment. Well, in substance, that work of judgment, of shattering kings, of, of you know, shattering nations, that was accomplished through his death and his resurrection. But there is a final reckoning that is to come. And that reckoning will come at the hand of the one who is Yahweh's priest, as well as his king. Why does that matter? Because he's going to judge all men with the authority of his lordship, but as God's mediator. The outworking of this judgment is ultimately on the basis of how men stand in relation to him as the mediator between God and men. As the point of reconciliation, as substitute, as true man. So the point is that the judgment, and this the psalmist doesn't say this, but it plays out in terms of how this is realized in Jesus. The final judgment, if we want to use that language, you know, the day when all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of that day at the hands of the priest is on the basis of what have you done with him? It's not did Jesus die for my sins or not. It's not a limited atonement question. It's a what have you done with this one who has reconciled all things to himself. Remember, even in the the Revelation picture, outside are all liars, those who have loved and practiced the lie. They have refused to own the truth of human renewal that is in the Messiah. They have insisted on defining themselves and living according to a way of being human that Jesus put to death. It has nothing to do with morality or ethics or rules or anything. It has everything to do with what is a human being. And Jesus put to death humanness as we all have known it. And the resurrection is the beginning of a new humanity. And that implicates every human being. And the refusal to own that is where this judgment takes place. Even if you look at Matthew 25, Jesus is tying this gathering of all the nations to, in a sense, what have you done with me? You didn't do this. You didn't do that. Well, when did we didn't do that? Well, in as, you didn't do this for me. You didn't, right? In as much as you didn't do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. It puts him at the center. Not did Jesus die for my sins or not. So in conclusion then, the Psalms, and this is wrapping up everything, the Psalms celebrate, among other things, the consummation of Israel's sonship. Well, what does that mean and what does that look like? Well, that sonship was to be fully realized in the unique Israelite that God had promised, the one who is the true son, the true disciple, the servant, the witness, the seed of Abraham. 
And his status as king-priest speaks not only to what he is uniquely and how he was to fulfill his messianic vocation, but ultimately who man is. What a human being is and what human beings were created for. The priest-king idea that is at the center of this psalm that, that was understood to be messianic and even the early Christians recognized that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled this. He is this king-priest. But they understood that that realization in him is the destiny of all people. That's God's destiny for his human creature. That's what Hebrews is all about, remember? The Hebrews writer keeps making so much of this Christ and what he's done and his exaltation and his enthronement, his inheritance of all things. Why? To encourage these Hebrew believers who are struggling and their lives are hard and their property seized and they're being imprisoned and all these things are going south around them. And he's trying to encourage them to hang in there steadfast because all that Jesus has inherited is what they are poised to inherit. Think again about Romans 8. Paul says all those who are in the spirit are sons. And if sons, then heirs, heirs of God, heirs of all that Jesus is heir to, all that Jesus has inherited. And then he talks about this waiting and, and for the you know, people to be revealed in all of their glory, in the fullness of the image and likeness of the Messiah and the resurrection, in the whole creation then being gathered back to God in and through human beings that are these image bearers through whom God mediates his life and his love and his lordship as priests and kings. And then how does Romans 8 end? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not together with him give us all things? What shall separate us from the love of God that's in Christ? Trouble, trial, persecution, famine, nakedness, the sword, No, in all these things, we overwhelmingly triumph through him who loved us. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Well, that's grounded again in this fact that who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. It's not just that he's sitting up on a throne somewhere in some place called heaven. And he has power to make things work out for us. It's that he's been exalted as the true man, the priest king. The one who administers as man God's lordship over the creation. And bears back as a priest the creation's worship and praise and service to its God. And he says, what I am is what you are destined for. Because I'm the last Adam. That's what our future is. It's not floating on a cloud, strumming a harp. It's not in some deep, mysterious ether world that we call heaven. It's living out and manifesting, administering God's own lordship over the works of his hands. It is an earthly hope. It is a creational hope. 
And so Jesus' triumph unto his installation as king priest and the surety of the consummation of that enthronement and that status, those things are the focal point of human concern in things pertaining to God. Those are the things that are at the center of what we should be concerned with. Those are the things that God says we're to be concerned with. They're the basis of final judgment. All people will be judged not on the basis of whether Jesus died for them or not, whether they're included in in some kind of limited atonement. All will be judged in relation to their response to God's triumph in his son. And so ownership of those realities, ownership of the life and the exaltation of the Messiah, with all that's entailed in that, with all that's implied in that, that's the marrow of what it means to have faith in Jesus. When we call people to faith in Jesus, that's what we're talking about. It's not just, do you believe in a man that lived a sinless life and died on a cross? And I'm not diminishing those things or denying those things. I'm saying that that doesn't get anybody anywhere in their understanding. This psalm was in the focal point of, of the early Jewish believers in Jesus and the Gentile ones too. Because they saw how all of this glorious revelation was fulfilled in him and to believe in Jesus is to own him as that sort of an enthroned king priest with the understanding that his share is in him that's the destiny through which or for which God is uh, uh, working in us by his spirit that's what Christiformity is all about owning these things owning these things living out these things that's the essence of what it means to have faith and so these truths are the essential substance of our self-identity. Ask believers, what does it mean to be a Christian? And see what they'll tell you. Oh, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I believe in Jesus. Well, none of those things are untrue, but what do they mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? These things are the essence of our self-identity. This is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at, right? He doesn't say, don't you know who you are? But it's the essence of what he's getting at. These are the things that are the essence of the believer's self-identity. They're the essence of our confidence. They're the essence. They, they, they show to us the full provision of our God for persevering. All that Jesus has inherited, we are heirs of. Do we believe that? Do we believe it? Do we believe it? Not just that we get a big house in a place called heaven. As Jesus is the enthroned king priest presiding over all creation, as sharers in him, we are heirs of all that. Do we believe it? Do we believe God has made full provision for our persevering in this union taken up in the life of God in Jesus by the Spirit. So these truths then give full meaning to the Christian's present existence. These things tell us the meaning of our lives now. Paul says these things show us that our lives are not in vain. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We're not just hanging on waiting till we can go to heaven. Our present 
days, our present moments, our present experiences, our present labors have meaning. They are the way in which God is working out this sonship unto this priestly, royal destiny. They were the path of it for Jesus. They're the path of it for us. And just as it was with him, so with us, this work of God in us is advancing towards the goal of that full inheritance. As Paul put it, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. All who are mature think that way. Forget what's behind, press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Regal and priestly existence is God's true image children. So my goal then, saints, in this series has been that the Psalms will become more thoroughly a part of our worship in spirit and truth. As they were central to Israel's worship, they should be central to ours, but in this sort of a way. Not just in informing our worship, but in even expressing our worship. These truths in the Psalms, these truths of sonship, give meaning, they give light, they give expression to our worship, they give expression to our hope. The glory that is ours, the glory that is in the face of Christ. And as they were songs of Israel's sonship, they should also be songs of our sonship, growing within us as we grow in Christ in view of that day of consummation, when we will everlastingly sing their truth, bound up in the truth of the Messiah himself, with hearts and minds that know, even as we are fully known. Just to close, then, I'd like to read Revelation 5 with you. John's vision and think of, think of what he's seen and what's been explained, being explained to him in the light of the things we've talked about today. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I believe that that scroll represents God's will for his creation. The revelation, the disclosure of God's purpose and will for his creation. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice saying, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or even look into it. And I began to weep loudly. This is the the language of like a person who just finds out that a loved one has died. This is wailing. This is a, a huge, loud expression of grief. He's wailing because there's no one who's worthy to open the book or to look into it. There is no way for God's purposes to be realized. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain the lion of the tribe of Judah, appearing as a lamb who has been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took 
the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And as soon as he takes the book, the four living creatures, the elders, fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They're now worshiping and bearing before the lamb the prayers of the saints, singing a new song. Remember the Psalms from last week. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels round the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Can you imagine John's sense of this heavenly assembly, this loud cacophony of voices of praise and worship? How overwhelming it must have been. But all of them gathered, all these myriads, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And every created thing that is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures just kept saying, Amen and Amen and Amen. It is true, it is true, it is true, it is true. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Father, these are glorious things, and I think that if we would give ourselves to consider and study them, as the psalmist said, your works are studied by all who delight in them. And that study only produces greater light, greater delight, and greater study, and greater delight, and greater study. I pray that we would be a people who, in our delight, study your works, your works which have all now been caught up in the grand and glorious work that is Jesus our Lord and his triumph. All of your work, all of your activities, all of your doings from the beginning of time up until that point were pointing towards and ultimately finding their reference in relation to that magnificent, inscrutable triumph that is in him. The mighty, victorious triumph of our God over all opposition that came in the greatest act of self-humiliation and self-giving. Who could have guessed, who could have known that Jesus would show himself to be the king of the Jews and the king of all the earth by that sacrificial death. Father, fill our hearts. I pray that you would help each one of us, even as we've only scratched the surface of the Psalms. I pray that we at least have a new set of lens with which to read them. And I pray that we would read and contemplate and meditate And let them be a source of our worship as we see them through the lens of this glorious work that has come in Jesus our Lord. Father, you have set us apart by your goodness and your grace to be Christians, people of the Messiah. And I pray that we would be truthful testifiers of him, people who delight in him, 
people who study him, people who grow in a true and a living knowledge of him, not just learning about the Messiah, but learning the Messiah, being taught in him by your spirit. Father, your destiny for us is full transformation into the likeness of Christ. That his priestly, kingly, cosmic inheritance will be ours. That in a family of people that covers the whole creation, this whole world, people of every tribe and tongue and nation, he would find his own fullness. And as he finds his fullness in the church, so our God becomes all in all. These are glorious things. And I pray that they would have a practical effect in our lives, that they would strengthen our faith. They would strengthen our resolve. They would banish all doubt, all fear, all insecurity, all despair. That they would cause us to be a people marked by unsearchable peace and joy. Peace that passes all understanding. Joy in the midst of the storm. A persevering spirit. Our God reigns. And we are ordained to rule and reign on your behalf. What can we say to such things? The God who is for us, who can be against us? Father, as the days and the weeks and the months go on, I pray that you would continue to work these psalms into the marrow of our being, that they would truly become a part of our worship, in our private devotions, in our corporate worship, that we would be worshipers with these songs of sonship. Thank you. We praise you. We pray for your continued mercy and grace upon us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.